Brother Matt Thomas's sermon this morning is entitled The Birth of Jesus of Nazareth, and he has asked that I read to you from Luke 2, verses 1 through 14. Luke 2, 1 through 14. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to, the, to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will, be, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Well, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2016. I hope that uh, the year brings you great blessings. Um, I know that no matter what comes our way, the, uh, the subject that we're going to talk about today is going to remain a great blessing and is going to see us through. It's going to see us through whatever comes our way and um, uh, it's our anchor of the soul. You know, the first day of 2016 was also uh, welcoming in that it was the first day in 11 days that we had sunshine. Uh, Colton came in uh, on the Monday the 21st and came from Haiti where it's sunny all the time, and he came in and just brought a bunch of clouds with him. And uh, I did not see a, a beam of sunlight until New Year's Day. Now, maybe some of you did. Somebody set up north of town a little bit. They saw for a second time. Even for Ohio, that's a long time, isn't it, to be overcast? And I guess we got it back now, but did you see the sunlight while it was out? Did, okay. Now let me ask you another question. Did you actually see the sun when it was out? Now that's a little different question. That's a little different question because uh, if you would have seen the sun, you would have had to look directly at it, and you know what happens when you look directly at it. First of all, you sneeze. Uh, that's what I do when I have to sneeze in Canada. Just, just take a quick glance at the sun, boy, that'll bring it. So all these old-fashioned remedies that you hear about, things to drink and holding your breath and, and plugging your nose and trying to belch and all this stuff, just, just take a quick glance at the sun and it'll make you sneeze. But it'll also burn your retinas. It'll burn your retinas. Your eyes can get sunburn. And, and you really can't see the glory of the sun anyhow when you look directly at it, even for a minute. I've had really dark sunglasses on before and tried to kind of look at it, and you can see more to it, but you can't see the, the glory of the sun. I mean, that thing, if you have to have a strong, strong filter 
to see all that's going on on the sun's surface. I mean, that thing is bubbling and boiling and shooting out solar flares. When uh, Brother Noby Stone was here, we saw some pictures of that, not only on the sun, but, but on another planet, of, of how those, so, those flares were just coming up hot. Now, we can't look at the sun directly like that, but, but we benefited from it, didn't we? If you think about that, um, first of all, we could, we could see a little bit better. When you're in a room like this and the sun's out, you can see better, right? Uh, we, we, of course, understand that. We ate food, uh, probably even today or, or recently and every day. We eat food that, that is um, uh, directly uh, the, the result of, of the gathering of sunlight into it. Uh, we're warmed this, type of, this time of year by sunlight, not just this directly from the sun, but mind you, if, if you're, uh, whether you're burning wood or um, using electric, electrical heat from um, uh, a coal-based power plant uh, or natural gas, all of these things are captured sunlight that we've learned to contain and then release so that we can warm up. It's all, it's all from the sun, isn't it? Even these lights here uh, indirectly are from the sun. So we, we benefit from the sun, but if you want to see it in all its glory, you've got to have a really good, strong filter, and then you can see what that thing looks like a little more. And so it is with God. So it is with God. No man has seen God and lived in all His glory. You remember Moses had to hide in the cleft of the rock. You remember how many men feared looking upon Him and fell to their faces so that they would not see the form of God. And how many times even representatives of God in the form of angels or even sometimes men, when, they, when, when the presence of God was powerful with them, people fell down before them. People know you don't want to look directly at God. You need a really powerful filter if you're going to see all the glory of God. Now, we benefit from God's blessings every day. All the things we just talked about with the Son are, are blessings from God. But if you really want to see His glory, you need a really good, strong filter. And that filter is Jesus Christ. That filter is Jesus Christ. You can look at Him and see the glory of God in its fullest. You can see His brilliance and His wisdom. You can see His love and His patience. You can see His mercy and His grace. You can see His desires for man and to save men from their sins when you look at Jesus. And so, today I want to talk to you about why Jesus became God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. John read from Philippians 2 this morning. He came in the likeness of men. We use the word incarnate, speaking of the carnal flesh, that He came into the carnal flesh. He wore it like a garment. He put it on and became fully human in doing so. He came in the likeness of men. Experienced life like you and I experience it with all of its trials temptations, and joys. But He also allowed us to see God at His fullest glory 
by looking directly into the face of Christ. And he said, watch me, observe me, behold me. And his great preachers that went out before him said, behold him. So what does he want you to see? I would say, I would put this forth to you first. He would want you to see first his gracious nature. His gracious nature. He wanted to demonstrate the fullness of those qualities that he used first to describe himself to Moses when he passed over him in the cleft of the rock and said, The Lord, the Lord God, gracious and merciful. It's the first thing I want you to know. And when Jesus Christ came, John said he came and brought grace and truth to their fullest degree. And so when the baby Jesus was born, God wanted mankind to see His gracious nature. Paul confirmed that when he said in Ephesians chapter 2, that God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he said, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, that any man should boast. You've been saved by grace. It's a gift of God. And it came in the form, as we saw here a minute ago, of a baby first seen in a manger in Bethlehem. He wanted you to see grace. By becoming human, Jesus did, as John said at the Lord's table, something for us that we could not do for ourselves. We could not possibly find a way within humanity to justify ourselves before God or to stand before Him without the guilt and shame of sin condemning us before the holy God. And He allowed us to be able to do that. His mission was a rescue mission. It was a rescue mission. Now, we've mentioned this a couple times recently, that God's desire is that for all men to be saved so that they can return the glory to Him that He desired from us when He created us. He wants to restore that garden scene with us. And the way that He did that was to send a Redeemer, a Rescuer, a Savior. And that's what that word Jesus means. Savior. You'll not name Him after His Father, Joseph, or the son of Joseph. He's not, he's not Jesus bar Joseph. He's Jesus the Son of God. And He was on a, a rescue mission for us. He brought life to us. He brought life to us in this way. That He is life. He's the life giver. He's the originator of life and the life-giving source that brought all men into existence, breathed into the nostrils of the first man, life through the Spirit, and then set in motion by natural laws and by His power that every time a male and a female conceive a baby in a womb, that that, that, that child would be filled with Spirit. He's the life giver. And when He came to the earth as the baby Jesus, what you saw there in the manger 
was life being gifted to us again. Sin separates us from God. It condemns us in in a, a direction of being punished. And Jesus came and said, I will give you life again. But it actually comes, and this is what I want you to get, in the form of He Himself. In other words, He didn't come bringing a gift in a package to give to you. He did not come bringing a a codified system of works by which you could be saved if you did these things. The life actually is in Him. Now that's something that we need to be careful to understand, I believe, in our day and age. In the church, we need to be careful to understand that my life is wrapped up in His life. Not just in His words. They are words of life because the words direct me to Him. The Bible is the word of life because in it we learn who He is and how I can become one with Him. I do not become one with Him by getting out my pen and going through and saying, well, I did that today and I did that today and I did that today. Isn't that good enough? Can't I have life? Can't you give me some of that? Jesus said, I am the life that you need to survive. You need to be wrapped up in me personally. Wow, that's very intimate, isn't it? That's very intimate. So that which I could not do for myself, that which the Jews could not do through keeping the law of Moses ever so meticulously, Jesus said, it's because I am the life. You need to become one flesh with me. Those who... Those who would say that living a good life is what God desires have a couple of problems to wrestle with. First of all, how do you measure what is good enough? How, how do you do, who decides who's a good person? Jesus said no one is good but one, that is God. Paul said there are none righteous, quoting from the prophet, no, not one. So like, by what measure are we using here to determine whether somebody's good enough to go to heaven? Secondly, well, first of all, when you do that, you're going to find yourself in in one of several camps. First of all, you're going to find yourself either in fear and insecurity because you realize that you're not good enough to be like God or to please God, or you're going to be arrogant enough to think that you are good enough to stand before God in your righteousness. But salvation is not about you living a good life. It's about you finding life. Finding life and attaching yourself to the life. And so it's difficult uh, if one would say, I think uh, by my good works, I'm going to go to heaven to have anything to measure that by. Our measure is Christ Jesus the Lord. Our righteousness by which we stand before God must come from Him giving us His righteousness. On the cross, He traded His righteousness for ours. He he took upon uh, Himself our sin and gave us the cloak of righteousness, which we are told that we put on when we submit to Him in baptism. We put on that garment and we become one with Him. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. We become united together with Him. And in Galatians 3 says we wear it like a garment. Just like He wore 
the human body as a garment, we also put on the garment of His righteousness when we respond. The other problem is that goodness doesn't remit sin. Goodness doesn't remit sin. It'd be like having a chronic disease and trying to fight it with some good habits. Eating well and exercising is always a good thing to do. doesn't matter if you've got good health or you're in poor health. If you eat better and you move your body, it's going to be good for you. But does that mean that it necessarily attacks the disease to rid the disease? It doesn't, does it? We don't treat chronic diseases by eating more fruit and vegetables. That's part of it, perhaps. But it doesn't attack the problem. The problem is that we stand before God sinners unless we clothe ourselves with the righteousness of Christ. So, in Jesus, we see a gift being given from God of life. And when He offers Himself on the cross, we have an opportunity to be united together with Him in the likeness of His death. Thank You for that gift, dear Lord. The second thing about Christ's coming that we see is urgency. Urgency. The message is repentance. Now you might think with this gift of graciousness, you'd, you'd hear all about love, but Jesus' forerunner came preparing people for Him by saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus Himself began to preach. As John decreased and He increased, Jesus said, Repent, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn. That's what repentance means. Turn 180 degrees, not 360, and keep going the same direction, 180, and come back to God. So the first words out of Jesus' mouth in His preaching ministry was, Turn around. And he said it with some urgency. John said it. Jesus said it. Peter answered the question on Pentecost when the first sermon was preached after Jesus was raised from the dead and went and sat at the right hand of the Father on high. And the people were convicted that, yes, indeed, He was the Son of God, but we crucified Him and I'm guilty and you're guilty. Men and brethren, what shall we do about this? Peter said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, all of you, it's an imperative. It's, it's, it's all inclusive that everyone who wants to get right with God, repent. When? Those people understood it to be that very day. 3,000 of them responded that very day in Acts chapter 2 and were baptized into Christ. Everyone who went out to John, you think about all of Jerusalem and Judea that went out to John, the forerunner of Christ before this ministry, how many people were going home wet? They were all baptized by John. They came out dry and they went home wet. He said, repent and turn. And they were baptized for the remission of their sins. Ananias asked the blinded persecutor Saul while he sat confounded after the third day, arise, why are you waiting? Get up. Wash away your sins. And he did so immediately. And God sent him on his way and on his mission. Immediately he arose. And then Paul began to preach. 
And he told the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, God has overlooked much ignorance, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he's appointed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he's given a full assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So we understand that by Jesus, He will judge the world in righteousness, and that means that God demands you repent now. Don't wait. And Paul pled with the Romans, and this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible concerning repentance especially. And he said, Oh, do you think, O oh man, that you'll escape the judgment of God, or do you despise the riches of His goodness? His forbearance. His long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But instead, he said, in accordance with hard and impenitent hearts, you're treasuring up for yourselves wrath on the day, the day of righteous judgment, the righteous judgment of God. Do you not know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? See, there's the motivator. Looking at the grace of that God has bestowed upon us in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you despise that gift? While you live in sin, be ready for the judgment day. Turn from your sin. There will be a time that you have an appointment with the one whom He's ordained. The baby Jesus lying in the manger meant peace and good tidings on earth and goodwill toward men. But it also means to repent now, for God has visited earth and left us an urgent message. Well, the third thing, and if you can advance me in the back to the third uh, point on this slide, I, I would appreciate that. The, the third thing is that His birth into the world means full fellowship with man. He demonstrated, Jesus did, God's infinite love by extend, extending the hand of fellowship to man. So he, he came as the gift of life. He had an urgent message to turn to God and he reached out his hand and he said, come into full fellowship. This isn't an impersonal thing. I am here from heaven to restore you to a right relationship with God. Extended his hand, extended invitation. He went and dined with sinners to demonstrate how far he would go. He, he said to the paralytic who was let down through the roof of that house, if you recall that story, he said to him with words first that stirred everybody in the house up, your sins are forgiven. He wanted, his, his imperative, his, his urgency was to restore that man's soul to God. Your sins are forgiven by this faith of yours. And he said, well, who can do that besides God? And then he performed the miracle of telling him, Arise, take up your bed and walk out so that people know I have the ability to restore people back to God the Father. That I'm, that I'm here to do so. Then you look at the case of Zacchaeus, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and how he went to Zacchaeus' home. No miracle was performed. But he said, Today salvation has come to this house. And those words were words of restoration. So whether Jesus did it with fireworks, or whether He just did it surrounding a, a dinner table, 
His mission was to restore men to God and to bring them into full fellowship with Him. You know, the birth of Jesus confirms that these instincts that we have in our heart and in our mind, which, which, by which we long to be loved and to know that, there's, that love is real and that there's a God who cares about us, the birth of Jesus proves that to be true. It proves it to be real. The statement, Jesus loves you, God loves you, isn't very powerful if Jesus hadn't come to the earth to prove it. But because He has, it becomes one of the most powerful short statements ever made by man's tongue. God loves you. Jesus loves you. Sir Francis Crick believed that your thoughts, feelings, and emotions are just chemical reactions of the neurons of your brain, a philosophy which has been picked up and carried on the shoulder of evolutionary thinkers like Richard Dawkins, implying that those who evolved this type of neurotic activity in the brain tended to take greater care of each other than those who did not. It increased the survival rate. The rest died out. And there are many people who ascribe to this very same idea today that this is how emotion, this is how morality came into existence by natural processes. But you know, there's not one single person that lives that way. There's not one single person that lives in such a way that they truly believe and then follow up on the idea that our thoughts and therefore our actions are just the result of, of random processes in the brain, neurons firing, causing us to do certain things because every one of us wants justice. Every one of us seeks righteousness among us. There's no one that's truly living by those same standards. And that is because the Bible has clearly revealed to us that love is real. It's in the form of the One who preexisted us. Love created the world. Love entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And love is redeeming the world into full fellowship with God. Author Dorothy Sayers, a mystery novelist of old, among the first women graduates of Oxford University in England, wrote a series of mystery novels highlighting the, the, the famed detective Lord Peter Whimsey, an aristocrat, great at solving these mysteries, but she wrote this series of novels and realized that, that he was lonely in his novel. And wouldn't you know that all of a sudden in these novels appeared Harriet Vane, a female novelist, among the first of the graduates of Oxford University, and they fell in love and they resolved mysteries together the rest of their life. You see, she saw in her own novel a need for Lord Whimsey to have a Savior. And so she wrote herself into 
her own novels. In a very real way, God did that. He wrote Himself into the narrative of this life by bringing Jesus Christ into the world with us to save us and bring us back to Him. The author and finisher of our faith saw the gaping hole between the ideal which was set forth in the garden but lost fairly quickly, the ideal that he knows that we can enjoy and the real that we're living in. And he closed that gap with Jesus. That we can come through Christ to Him and be restored into that full fellowship. While we're here in this life, we still have to live in the real. Our hope is in the ideal. But through the birth of Jesus Christ into the world, we can be assured, as Paul said, being fully assured of the day that He'll return for us. Luke Luke wrote and began his Gospel in chapter 1, writing of those things which were most certainly believed among them. This hope is the hope I'm setting forth to you today. It's the hope that Paul captured in the the great statement he made. And if you'll uh, advance to the last slide here, the Scripture, 1 Timothy 1, 15-17, when he said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Christ Jesus might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. That's you and I. He began a pattern of showing long suffering and patience and kindness to sinners when He came to the world of men. And then He made this great statement. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, To God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God went to great lengths to come close to you and I. I want to ask you, to what length will you go to come close to God? Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Let's stand and sing.